Mary Slusser of Calabar, Pioneer Missionary by W.P. Livingston. Chapter 33 The Shy Speaker Eagerly looked for after her heroic service in Okiang, she received a warm welcome from her friends in the United Presbyterian Church. For some weeks she lived at Joppa, and then, anxious to be independent, she took a small house near at hand, where she and Janie managed the work and cooking. It was not a very comfortable house, and Miss Adams, one of the chief women of the church and convener of the Zanana Mission Committee, made arrangements for her and the children staying at Bowden about St. Boswell's. Here, looking down upon a beautiful expanse of historic border country, she spent a quiet and restful time. As her vitality and spirits came back, she began to address meetings and found that the interest in her work had deepened and extended. She was, if anything, shyer than ever, and would not speak before men. At a drawing-room gathering in Glasgow, the husband of the lady of the house and two well-known ministers were present. She rose to give an address, but no words came. Turning to the men, she said, "'Will the gentleman kindly go away?' The lady of the house said it would be a great disappointment to them not to hear her. Then she replied, "'Will they kindly go and sit where I cannot see them?' When she began to speak, she seemed to forget her diffidence, and she held the little audience spellbound. At a certain meeting, a gentleman slept in. After a slight pause, she said, "'If the gentleman in the meeting would hide behind the lady in front of him, I would be more at my ease.' On another occasion, she fled from the platform when called on to speak, and it was only with difficulty that she was brought back. When people began to praise her, she slipped out and remained away until they had finished. She was a most gentle-looking lady, writes one who heard about her, rather below the average height, a complexion like yellow parchment, and short, lank brown hair, a most pleasing expression and winning smile, and when she spoke I thought I had never heard such a musical voice. She went to her hometown, Aberdeen, and addressed a meeting in Belmont Street Church, where her mother had attended, and of her power of speech, the Reverend Dr. Beat, the minister, who is in the chair, says, it was characterized by a simple diction, a tearful sympathy, a restrained passion, and a pleading love for her people, which made it difficult to listen to her without deep emotion. At one meeting in Glasgow, she spent an hour shaking hands. What a lot of love there is in the world, after all, she said gratefully. She received such a reception at the meeting in Edinburgh that she broke down. Recovering herself, she earnestly denied that her work was more remarkable than that of any other missionary in Calabar. They all work as hard or harder than I do. She went on to plead for an ordained missionary for Okiang. I feel that my work here is done. I can teach them no more. I would like to go further inland and make a home among a tribe of cannibals. Many a stirring appeal she made for workers. If missions are a failure, she says, it is our failure and not God's. If we only prayed and had more faith, what a difference it would make. In Calabar, we are going back every day. For years we've been going back. The Chiland Inland Mission kept on asking for men, 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 and they got what they want, and more than we get. We keep calling for money, 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 and we get money, of great value in its place, but not the men and women. Where are they? When Sir Herbert Kitchener, going out to conquer the Sudan, required help, thousands of the brightest of our young men were ready. Where are the soldiers of the cross? In a recent war in Africa, in a region with the same climate and the same malarial swamps as Calabar, there were hundreds of officers and men offering their services, and a royal prince went out. But the banner of the cross goes a-begging. Why should the queen have good soldiers, and not the king of kings? Her nervous timidity was often curiously exhibited. She was, for instance, afraid of crowds, and she would never cross a city street alone. 
and once, when she was proceeding to a village meeting, she would not take a shortcut through a field, because there was a cow in it. Yet she was never lacking in high courage when the need arose. At a meeting in Edinburgh, several addresses had been delivered, and the collection was announced. As is often the case, the audience drew a sigh of relief, relaxed attention, and made a stir in changing positions. Some began to whisper and to carry on a conversation with those sitting near them. She stood the situation as long as she could, then rose and spoke, regardless of all the dignitaries about her, and rebuked the audience for their want of reverence. Were they not presenting their offerings to the Lord? Was that not as much an act of worship as singing and praying? How, then, could they behave in such a thoughtless and unbecoming manner? There was something of scorn in her voice as she contrasted the way in which the Calabar converts presented their offerings with that of the well-educated Edinburgh audience. When she sat down, it was amidst profound silence. That is a brave woman, was the thought of many. With her baron, she left towards the end of the year, 1898, Miss Adams accompanying them to Liverpool to see them safely on board. A more notable person than she realized, she was sought out by a special representative of Reuters' agency and interviewed. Her story of the superstitious practices connected with the birth of twins in West Africa had the element of horror which made good copy, and most of the newspapers in the kingdom next day gave a long description of these customs and of her work of rescue. Incidentally, she stated that up to the time she had saved a 51 twins from destruction. She thought nothing of this talk with the reporter, never mentioned it to anyone, and was unaware of the wine of publicity accorded to her remarks. She spent Christmas on board the steamer. Again, everyone was kind to her, officers and stewards vying with each other in showing her attention. All along the coast she was well known, and invitations came from officials at government headquarters, but these she modestly declined. She was interested in all things that interested others, and would discuss engineering and railway extension, and trade prices, and the last new book as readily as mission work as policy. The children she kept in the background, as she had done in Scotland, and would not allow them to be spoiled. On arrival in Calabar they were much made of, and it was only the experienced Janie who did not like the process. Chapter 34 Isolation An exceptionally trying experience followed. Arrangements had been made by the committee in Scotland for the better staffing of the station, but these broke down, and for the next three years she worked alone, her isolation only being relieved by an occasional visit from the lady missionaries in Calabar. During that long period she fought single-handedly, a double battle in the depths of the forest. She was incessantly at war with the evils that were still rife about her, and she had to struggle against long spells of low fever and sleeplessness. And right bravely did she engage in the task, conquering her ill health by sheer willpower, and gaining an ever greater personal ascendancy over the people. Number 1. A Mother in Israel the gradual pacification of Okoyang, brought about by her influence and authority, increased rather than diminished her work. As the people settled down to ordinary occupations and trade, the land became valuable, and disputes were constantly cropped up regarding ownership and boundaries. There was much underground palavaring, of which no one knew but herself, which kept her always on the strain. She had to mother the whole tribe, and it took all her patience and tact to prevent them reverting to their old violent practices. A government official of that time, who had to inquire into a number of cases over which there had been correspondence with her, says, I stayed with Ma and had my first lesson in how to deal with natives. It did not require very long for even a fresher to see what a power in the land she was. All came to her in any kind of trouble. As an interpreter, she made every palabar an easy one to settle, 
but the fact that she would represent to each side accurately what the other party wished to convey. Her fame had gone still farther, and people were now coming from places a hundred miles distant to see the wonderful person who was ruling the land doing away with all the evil fashions. And what did they see? A powerful sultana sitting in a palace with an army at her command? No, only a weak woman in a lowly house, surrounded by a number of helpless children. But they too came under her mysterious spell. They told her of all the troubles that perplexed their lives, and she gave them advice and helped them. In one week she had deputations from four different tribes, each with a tale of wrong and oppression. Innocent people fled to her to escape the fate decreed by the witch-doctor. Guilty people sheltered with her, knowing that they were sure at least of nothing worse than justice. She welcomed them at all, and to all she spoke of the Savior, and strove to bring them to his feet. And none went away without carrying some of the fragrance of that knowledge. And in remote districts unvisited by the white man, it lingered for years, so that when missionaries went there later on, they would come across a man or woman who said, Oh, I know all about Jesus, the white mother once told me. She was so interested in these strangers that the desire came to know more about them and their surroundings, and she made numerous trips up the cross river by mission, steamer, and canoe, and visited the townships on the banks. On one of these journeys, she felt for the first time that death was at her side. A dispute had arisen between Okuyang and Uman, and the Uman people, strong in the belief that she would met out justice, even against her own tribe, begged her to come and decide the quarrel. It was a long day's journey for the best walkers, but, she said, if they can do it in a day, so can I. A well-manned canoe was, however, sent for, and she proceeded in it with some of the twin children. They were speeding down a narrow creek leading into the river. A man, standing with his paddle at the bow to negotiate the canoe past the logs and trees, when a hippopotamus, which was attended by its young, rose immediately in front and attacked it savagely. The man at the bow instantly thrust the paddle into the gavey mouth and shoved the canoe violently to one side. Mary seized some large tin basins with covers, which the natives used for holding cooked food, and placed them outside in front of the part where the children were sitting. And when the infuriated hippopotamus was trying to grip and upset the canoe, these curious weapons succeeded in baffling the monster. Several times it made a rush and failed. The shouting, the snapping of the jaws, the whirling of the paddles, the cries of the children almost unnerved her. The hippo at last made for the stern, where some of the paddlers beat it off, and kept it at bay long enough to enable the others to turn the canoe and rush it out of reach. But she could not now afford to be long away from her station, for the utmost vigilance was required to combat the evils around her. In spite of the British laws and gunboats, twin murder continued in secret. She noticed, however, that where the people came within the influence of the mission, their fears gradually disappeared. What pleased her was that women to whom she had been kind voluntarily brought in twins to her that would otherwise have been killed. One day she and Mr. Alexander were sitting at breakfast when a woman walked in, and without remark placed a large calabash on the table. Mary thought it was a dish of native food and said, You have come too late. We have just finished. Still, the woman was silent. Mary opened the calabash and found it contained two twin boys. There were other promising signs. The mother of a twin baby who was saved, came to the mission house and lived there, working at the farm during the day. One master took a twin and the mother home. All his other wives at once gathered up their children and left him, but he remained firm. As the woman had been a neighbor of Ma's at Ikenj, it is probable that her influence had told on her then. But the outstanding event in this direction was that a twin boy was taken home by his parents, who was determined to keep him. 
The affair made a great stir, but she told all the chiefs that she would stand by the parents, and if they dared to say a word or trace any calamity to the family, she would make Palavar. They were grimly silent, but could not dispute her word. She believed that their attitude was only due to fear, which would die away if a stand was made. Her work in school and Bible class was beginning to tell. Six of the best boys of free birth and good standing, whom she was training, were now Christians and working in the villages around. Two sons of the most powerful chiefs in the district took the reading, and another was the speaker. It was not much to boast of, perhaps. I feel the smallness of the return, she said, but is the labor lost? A thousand times, no. Number two, the cares of a household. Her most trying fight during these years was with ill health. She was now occupying the new house, which she pronounced lovely, but it was hotter than any she had lived in, and she often sighed for her lowly mud hut again. At one time she was three months in bed, and recovery was always a slow and weary process. The people were afraid she would have to go to Scotland, and came and assisted her in every way, while her boy scholars maintained the services. But often she would struggle up and conduct the Sunday meeting herself, although it meant a sleepless night. I am ashamed to confess, she wrote, that our poor wee services here take as much out of me as the great meeting at home did. To fill in the wakeful hours she would rise in the middle of the night, light a candle, and answer a bunch of correspondence. There were friends to whom she did not require to write often. Ours is like the life above. We do not need to tell. We can go on loving and praying, but this is a rare thing in the world. Others were not so considerate. Some of her letters at this period were marked midnight, 3 a.m., just before dawn, and so on. But more often she was unable to sit up, and was too tired to write and lay thinking of her last visit home, particularly her sojourn about him. I never had such a time. I live everything all over again during these sleepless nights. It grips me more than my real home life of long ago. She never grumbled to her correspondence, even when in the grip of nervous debility. Her letters were filled with loving inquiries about people, especially the young people at home. She kept them all in mind, followed their lives with interest, and was always anxious to know if they had consecrated themselves to the service of Christ. Life is so great and so grand, she would write, and eternity is so real and so terrible in its issues. Surely my lads out here are not to take the crown for my boys at home. Now and again, however, a strain of sadness is perceptible in her letters, perhaps due to the state of her health and her isolation, as well as the outlook abroad, which was then unrestful. All is dark, she said, except above. Calvary stands safe and sure. Often she wondered what worldlings did in the midst of all their entanglements, and the mysteries of life and death without some higher hope and strength. Life apart from Christ, she would say, is a dreadful gift. Her own future loomed uncertain, and the thought of the children began to weigh upon her mind. It is not likely I shall ever go home again. I feel as if I did not want to. How could I leave the barons in this dreadful land? Who would mother them in this sink of iniquity? And soon afterwards she wrote, I do not think I could bear the parting with my children again. If I be spared a few years more, I shall have a bit of land to build a wee house of my own near one of the principal stations, and just stay out my days there with my barons, and lie down among them. They need a mother's care and a mother's love more than ever as they grow up among heathen people, and I could do a little through them for the dark homes and hearts around. It would be a house and home for them when I am gone, where the missionaries could be near them. Janie, the faithful, unselfish soul who had been with her from babyhood, was at last married. Her husband, she said, is my best scholar, and if his social standing is not the highest, he is a real companion to her and to my barons, who worship him. The ceremony was performed by Ma, 
and the entry in EFIC in a tiny marriage registry runs as follows. December 21st, 1899, Janie Annan took oath before Oban Chief Okon Ikpo and Ernie Ita that she will marry Ikaibo Ioi alone. Ikaibo also took oath that he will marry Jane alone. They went to the farm with Imi Ita, MMS. The break in the family life gave her much more to do, but Janie, or Jean, as she was now more often called, still clung to her and spent much time at the mission house, attending to the babies as before, her husband not objecting to her handling the twins and even allowing her to take one home to her house during the day. But difficulty and disappointment came, as they often do in Africa, and once more Jean became an inmate of the household in which she was to remain to the end. One day a baby arrived whose mother had died after giving it birth, and she took it and made it her special child. This was Dan MacArthur Slusser, called after a home friend of the mission, a black boy who was to become almost as well-known in Scotland as Jean herself. By and by, with returning strength, the house mother was able to resume her old, strenuous ways from cockcrow to starshine. The cares of her household never grew fewer. Housekeeping in the bush, she would remark, means so much more as well, as so much less than in Scotland. There are no at-homes, no drawing-room ornaments to dust, no search dresses, but on the other hand there are no butchers or bakers or nurses or washwomen, and so I have to keep my shoulders to the wheel both indoors and out of doors. There were defects in the situation. She did not need other people to tell her that. She was often overwhelmed with the multitude of her duties, at her wit's end to manage all the children. I have only three girls at present, she writes, and I have nine babies. And what with the washing, and the school, and the palavars, and the visitors, you may be sure that there are no drones in this house. Sometimes she would stand in a state of pretended distraction and repeat, There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She was not a housewife in the real sense, although she knew domestic economy with the best, and there were days when she rose in her might and introduced order and tidiness, but matters soon fell back into the normal conditions. She was always quite candid about her deficiencies. I have not an elaborate system or method of work. It is just everything as it comes. I am afraid my mind is not a trained machine. It only works as it chooses. Yet no family of white children could have been more cared for or loved. She endeavored to make Sunday a specially pleasant day for them, and tea then was always of happy function. All sat at a big table in the hall. Jeannie, Mana, Annie, Mary, Alice, and Maggie, with bunches of little boys and girls on the floor. It was then that boxes of delicacies from home were opened and devoured. How grateful she was to all her friends. The gifts she would write are veiled in a mist of love, real Scottish love, reticent but deep and strong, full of pathos and prayer. The dear love inspired in our strong, rugged Scots character by the Holy Ghost, and molded by our beloved Presbyterianism of the olden time, love that does not forget with the passing years. Two years after she returned, she related cheerfully that she was still wearing the dress that had been given to her on furlough, as her best on the occasions when government officials called upon her. She saw pathos in these gifts, but none of that deeper pathos which lay in her own life. She saw nothing to grieve about in her own position, but only in the empty houses along the Cross River. She was not anxious about herself, but desperately anxious about the extension of Roman Catholic influence in Calabar. To think, she exclaimed, that all our blood and treasure, love and sacrifice and prayer, should have been given to make a place for them. From her house in the bush, she had been eagerly watching the sweep of that great movement which culminated in 1900 in the Union of the United Presbyterian and Free Churches of Scotland. 
she loved the blue banner of the United Presbyterian Church, and one of her constant admonitions to the younger generation was to carry on the grand old traditions. At first she had been inclined to favor a kind of fraternal federation, each denomination keeping its distinct principles, but she came to believe in the transfusion of the two streams of spiritual life. We must not forget, she wrote, that the free church people were met at the disruption by an empty exchequer and a confusion and blank that targeted all their energies. It took them such hard work in those days to get churches and homes for themselves that they got a bias that way, and the outlook to the other sheep may have been so wide as that of our forefathers. These used the little prayer houses and humble meeting places for prayer and preaching. They were men nursed in persecution and contempt and poverty and they reaped God's compensation in a detachment from the world, and in the grit and spirituality and faith and unity which stress and persecution breed. And we have inherited, inherited it all, and it is our contribution to the church life of today. Her hope was that the Union might create a new and enlarged interest in the mission field and fill up the ranks of Calabar. But she was to be disappointed in this. She often expressed the view that the mission to which she had given her heart and life had been swallowed up and had somehow lost its individuality. Into the United Free Church, the United Presbyterians brought 38 women missionaries and 185 women agents. And the Free Church brought 60 European women missionaries and 10 Euro-Asians and nearly 400 native women agents, making, on the women's side of the work alone, a total missionary staff in round numbers of 100 European workers, assisted by nearly 600 local agents, and all these were now put under a new body, the Women's Foreign Mission Committee, composed of some of the most gifted and consecrated minds of the Church. 35. Exile to Creektown A dramatic public event which vitally affected her own life in the course of the mission enterprise brought her seclusion to an end. The story belongs more to the next phase of her career, but may be briefly noted here. With the extension of British influence into the interior of the continent, the former government had undergone another development. Two proctorates were formed, northern and southern Nigeria, and Sir Ralph Moore was appointed High Commissioner of the latter. The same policy of pacifying and cleaning up the country continued, but there were still large stretches practically untouched by the agents of the government, including the territory lying between the Cross River and the Niger, in the upper part of which slave raiding and trading went on as it had done for centuries. The Eros, a powerful tribe who controlled the Juju worship, were the people responsible for this evil. They would not submit to the new conditions, continued to make war on peaceful tribes, and indulged in human sacrifices, blocked the trade routes, and resisted the authority of the government. One officer was only able to penetrate 15 miles west of the Cross River, not without perilous experiences, and then was obliged to beat a rapid retreat to escape being killed and eaten. The government was very patient and conciliatory, but it became absolutely necessary at last to dispatch a small expedition, and a field force was organized at Calabar for the purpose. Dr. Retray of the mission staff was attached to it as a medical officer. The arrows did not wait for the advance. They raided a village only 15 miles from Ikoro Ofiung, and as a precaution, all the missionaries upriver were ordered down to Duke and Creek towns. Ofiung was unmoved by these matters. Moss Lester's authority was supreme. But while the government believed that all would be well, they thought it better that she should also come to Calabar until the trouble was over. Very much against her will, she complied. They sent up a special convoy for her and treated her with all consideration. They even offered to build a house at Creektown for her and her large family. 
but she did not wish to become too closely identified with the government and decline their kindly assistance. She found accommodation in part of the hospital, where, however, she had no privacy and was not very comfortable. It was the first time she had been in Calabar since her arrival three years before, and she was not happy. She was never otherwise than ill, and she longed to get away from the crowd and the bright, the terribly bright sky. The children also were unwell, but there were compensations. The Okuyong people kept steady during the unrest and remained true to their queen. They came down to see her, brought all their disputes for her to settle, and loaded her with gifts of food, which were very acceptable as prices had risen. Her lads kept on the services, and the people attended regularly. She heard good news of the twins, which the mothers had taken in order to relieve her. They were in four different houses, in four different districts, and nothing had been said by the people. One of her oldest friends, the wife of a big chief, a wealthy, leisure woman, bore twins. She instantly wrote to the chief, telling him to put her into a canoe and send her down to Creektown. "'I am sorry for her,' she said, "'but we cannot make a different laws for the rich and for the poor. And yet one may press too far with the chief and incite rebellion. After all, we are foreigners, and they own the country. So I always try to make the law fit in, while we adjust things between us.' A campaign of three months suffered to break the power of the Eros, but long before that she was wearying to be back in Okiang. At last she appealed to the commissioner. He asked her to wait until a certain movement of troops was completed. Smilingly, she replied that she would be off at first opportunity, and she went. Her enforced sojourn in Creektown was followed by the best results. New missionaries had come out in whom she became interested. The one to whom she owed most was the Reverend A. W. Wilkie, B.D., who soon afterwards married a daughter of Dr. George Robson, the editor of the missionary record. With these two she formed a friendship which was to prove one of the joys of her life. Mr. Wilkie understood her from the first. His keen insight enabled him to explore a character that was growing even more complex, and he possessed that quality of understanding sympathy to which alone her sensitive nature responded. She enjoyed meeting these young workers who had come to carry on the traditions of the mission, she liked them because of their eagerness and energy and their desire to do things. All her knowledge was at their disposal, and she would tell them of the golden days of the past and describe the characteristics and superstitions of the people, as well as speak of the higher things of life. Some of them thought her the most fascinating woman they had ever met. Her talks, they declared, were better than medicine. Many a wise bit of counsel she passed on to her sister missionaries. She gave me at the very beginning of life in Calabar, says one, a piece of advice that I have never forgotten and which has comforted me over and over again. I was saying that in a place like Duke Town, it was so difficult to know exactly what to do. And she said, Do, lassie. Do? You've not got to do. You've just got to be, and the doing will follow. Make a bold stand for purity of speech and charity of judgment, she told another, and let none of the froth that rises to the top of the life around you vex or disturb your peace. Many acknowledged that they had their lives enriched, their faith strengthened, and their work helped by contact with her. Chapter 36 Pictures and Impressions The younger missionaries began to frequent Akpap, and from the accounts of their visit we obtained some unstudied and vivid pictures of Ma and her household. This slight woman with the shrunken, colorless skin, the remarkable deep-set eyes, and the Scots tongue, so poor in the gifts of the world, so rich in the qualities of the spirit, made a deep impression upon them, although it is a question whether they ever fully understood all she was and did. They lived in the European atmosphere, she in the native. They noticed only superficial aspects. She moved deep beneath the surface, amongst conditions of which they were only dimly aware. 
We walked for five or six miles along the pleasant bush path, writes one, and as we neared the big trees in the clearing round the mission house, children's voices cry, Ma is coming! And a sweet, somewhat strident voice inquires, What Ma? Jean, put the kettle on. Jean, put the kettle on. And we'll all have tea, sings out my friend. How are you, Ma? For we have reached the veranda, and Ma, equally hospitable, is giving us her royal welcome. She was usually found barefooted and bareheaded, with the twin baby in her arms and a swarm of children about her, or on the roof nailing down the sheet iron which a tornado had shifted, or holding a palavar from the veranda, or sitting in court, but always busy. No one could have much time for a rest here, was the verdict of one missionary after a short stay. Her power, wrote another, is amazing. She is really queen of the whole of Okiyang district. The high commissioner and his staff leave the administration of it in her hands. It is wonderful to see the grip she has of the most intricate native and political questions of the country. The people tell me she knows their language better than they do themselves, and that they appeal to her on their own customs and laws. She has done a magnificent work, and the people have a deeper reference for her than you can imagine. When they speak of her, their tones change. One thing I noticed, she never allowed a native to sit in her presence. She keeps them all at a respectful distance, although when they are ill, sometimes with the most loathsome diseases, she will nurse them as she never shakes hands with them. She told the High Commissioner to do so with some, but for herself, never. When I asked her the reason, she looked at me and said simply, I live alone. The reference to her command of the language bears out what all competent observers have stated. Some missionaries retain their accent even after long service and speak as foreigners. But she had all the vocabulary, the idioms, the inflections, the guttural sounds, the interjections and sarcasms, as well as the quick characteristic gestures that belong only to the natives. She excelled even the natives themselves in their own tongue, says Mr. Luke. She could play with it and make the people smile. She could cut with it and make them wince. She could pour spats of indignation until they cried out, Enough, Ma! And she could croon with it and make the twins she saved happy. She could sing with it softly to comfort and cheer. One visitor, who accompanied a missionary friend, found her haranguing a crowd who had arrived at Palabar. She stopped now and again and spoke to the visitors in broad Scots. Well, said the missionary afterwards, what do you think of her? I would not like her to catch me stealing her chickens, was the reply. One of the qualities which astonished her guests was her utter fearlessness. There was no locks in her mission doors. She went everywhere, condemning chiefs, finding them, divorcing them, and came home to her barons to be a child with them, and to romp and sing to them queer little chants of her own composition. One story of these days her visitors carried away. A murder had been committed, and the slayer was pursued by the people, who intended to follow out their custom and torture him. He was seized in chains. Straining to break loose, his eyes almost bursting from their sockets, he cried, Beware! You may kill me, but my spirit will come back and spoil you. I will not be you, the slaves, but you, the chiefs, will suffer. Beware! I will come if you do not take me to Ma's house. He was taken to Ma, who, on hearing the evidence, ordered him to be conveyed to Duketown. Then she loosed him from his chains and sat down with him alone in the house for the whole afternoon. The doors and windows were open, and all he had to do was strike her down and flee, but she showed no fear. At night he was again chained and placed in the prayer room or storeroom underneath until the guard arrived. During the night he managed to slip off his chains and was free to escape into the bush. When she came into the room in the morning with food and called him, there was no sound of reply. It was dark in the place, but she entered and moved around to find the prisoner. At the back of the door, she came into contact with the swinging body. He had taken off his loincloth and had hanged himself. Her visitors noticed, almost with wonder, her devotion to the children and the little morsels of humanity that came pouring in upon her. Miss Welsh thus described the household. 
Jean, the ever-cheerful and willing helper, Annie, the drawer of water and hewer of wood, kind, willing worker, Mary, the smart, handsome favorite, Alice, the stolid, pendable little body, and Maggie, the fusionless, Danny, the imp, and Osoku, who looked with his big, innocent eyes a wee angel, and who yet was in constant trouble, chiefly for insisting on sharing the cat's meals. Then there were the babies, a lovely wee twin girl, whom their mother was nursing, a poor wee boy almost skin and bones lying cradled in a box. Behind the house in a rough shelter was another twin mother, carrying none too kindly for her surviving child. Another writes, I never saw anything more beautiful than her devotion to these black children. She had a poor sick boy in her arms all the time, and nursed him while walking up and down directing the girls. He died at eleven-thirty, and she slept with him in her arms all night. Next morning he was put in a small milk-packing case, and the children dug a grave and buried it and held a service. And here we have the scene at evening prayers. We began with an ephic prayer of her own, which she chanted line by line, while the little ones chanted it with a weird intonation. Then they sang the whole in the tune French. She tested their memory at the morning lesson, and gave them a homely but powerful address, interrupting herself once to tell us how hydrophobia had broken out a few days before, and how she had held one poor lad of ten in her arms until he died. She prayed, and the children bowed their heads till they rested upon the ground. They next chanted the Amen, and half-chanted the Lord's Prayer, and finished with what she called one of the new fanciful English hymns, If I Come to Jesus. Then, very simply and sweetly, she commended us all to the Father's love and care. Long talks, often prolonged into the night, would follow. How Mom talked, says Miss Walsh, and what a privilege it was to listen. What an experience, and what an education. How she made the past vivid as she lived it once again, the days of her girlhood, her mischievous pranks, her love of fun, her early days in Calabar, tales of the old worthies, tales of herself and her own life, of her early pioneering, of loved ones at home, of kind letters whose messages of cheer she would share, of comfort and help from God's word, from the passage of the day's reading, of new lessons learned, of new light revealed. I can still hear her, still listen with the old fascination, still enjoy her wild imaginations, still marvel at her amazing personality, her extraordinary vitality and energy, still feel, as I have ever felt, her God-given power to draw one nearer to the Lord she loves so well. When her guests departed, she would walk with them a long way, her feet bare, her head uncovered. No, said a missionary, I would not like to see other ladies do that, but I would not care to see her different. It is easy to give a false impression of her. She is not unwomanly. She is eccentric, if you like, but she is gentle of heart, with a beautiful simplicity of nature. I join in the reverence which the natives show her. Chapter 37 A Night in the Bush Miss Lesser began to feel that her days in Okoyong were drawing to a close. Her part of the work there was done. The district was civilized, and all that the station required was organization and detail and steady development. But she was not one to rest in any circumstance in which she was placed. She abated nothing of her devotion in the interest of the people, and although her strength did not now allow her to take long journeys on foot, she never hesitated to answer the call upon her sympathy and courage. She had more than one adventure in these days, but she passed through so many hard experiences that she made light of them, regarding them as mere incidents in the day's work. One afternoon, while she was in school, there appeared before her a young man of the superior class of slaves, who said his wife had given birth to twins in the bush more than twelve miles away. All the people had deserted her. A tornado was brewing. Would she come and help? 
Ma thought of her brood of children, and one a sickly baby. But turning them over to the slave twin mother she had bought, and leaving food with her in the hut, she committed the whole twelve to Providence and set out with Jean. The young man led them at a breathless pace. "'If only you could stop the rain-cloud,' he cried back. "'I am praying that God may keep it back,' was all Mary could jerk out. The way seemed endless, and the shadows of night fell swiftly about them. But at last they arrived near the spot, and were joined by the mistress of the slave and an old naked woman. They found the mother lying on the ground, surrounded by charms. Ma pushed these away with her foot. The night was pitch black. There was an occasional raindrops, and the woman was delirious. She ordered the husband and his slave man to make a stretcher. They regarded the idea with horror, and pleaded that they could never carry her, their belief doubtless being that they would die if they touched the unclean burden. All begged Ma to leave the woman to her fate, but she turned upon them with a voice of scorn, and such was her power that the men hastily set to and constructed a rough stretcher of branches and leaves, and even helped to place the woman upon it. Before leaving, a sad little ceremony had to take place. One of the infants was dead, and Jean took her machete and dug a little cavity in the ground, and upon some soft leaves the child was laid and covered up. She then lifted the other twin, the men raised the stretcher, and the party set off. A fire-stick, red at the point, and twirled to maintain the glow, dimly showing them the way. The rain kept off, but it was so dark that Ma had to keep hold of the hem of Jean's dress in order not to lose her. The latter stumbled and fell, bringing down Mary also. "'Where are you?' each cried, and then a hand or foot was held out and gripped. Sometimes the men dropped to their knees, but the jolting brought no cry from the unconscious form they were carrying. By and by they drew up in the utter solitude, and had to confess they were lost. The men left to grope for signs of the path, and the two women were alone. Jean grew depressed, not on her own account, but on Ma's, for she knew that she was utterly exhausted, and could not hold out much longer. "'What if they desert us?' she said. "'Well,' replied Mary, trying to appear as if fatigue and fear and wild beasts had no existence, "'we shall just stay here until the morning.' Jean's response was something like a grunt. One of the men returned. "'Can't find a road,' he grumbled, and disappeared again. What was that? A firefly? No, a light. The other man had discovered a hut, and had procured a lighted palm tassel dipped in oil. Poor as it was, it served to show the way until the path was reached. After sore toil they gained the mission yard. The men laid the stretcher in an open shed, and overcome with their exertions, threw themselves down anywhere and went asleep. But there was no rest yet for Mary. Securing some old doors and sheets of iron, she patched up a room for the woman in which she would pass the night. The children were awakened and crawled out of Ayi's hut into the yard, crying in sleepy misery. Jean and Annie carried them to the mission house and put them to bed, and brought back some hot food for the patient who was constantly moaning, "'Cold, cold, give me a fire!' Not till she was fed and soothed did Mary give in. She could not summon sufficient strength to go upstairs, but lay down on the floor where she was with her clothes on, and all the dirt of the journey upon her, and slept till daybreak. The baby died next day, and the mother hovered at the point of death. Mary strove hard to save her, but the result was doubtful from the first. None in the yard would give any help save Jean. The woman was a social leper, and all sat at a safe distance, dumb or blaspheming. Conscious at the end, the poor girl cried piteously to her husband not to reproach her. "'It is not my fault,' she said. "'I did not mean to insult you.' Ma placed her hand on her hot brow, calming her and they prayed that she might find an entrance into a better world than the one which had treated her so badly. 
When she passed away, she thrust aside the leper woman whom her people had sent to assist her, and washed the body herself and dressed her, so that for once a twin mother was honored in her death. She was placed in a coffin of corrugated iron, strengthened with bamboo splints, and beside her were put the spoons and pot and dish and other things which she had used. Her husband and his slave bore her into the bush, and there, a desolate spot, where no one was likely to live or plant or build, they left her and stole from the place in terror. Chapter 38 With Loving-Kindness Crowned On the fifteenth anniversary of that notable Sunday in 1888, when Mary settled at Ekenge, the first communion service in Okiyang was held. It crowned her service there, and put a seal upon the wonderful work she had accomplished for civilization and for Christ. Alone she had done in Okiyang what it had taken a whole mission to do in Calabar. The old order of heathenism had been broken up. The business of life was no longer fighting and killing. Women were free from outrage and the death menace. Slaves had begun to realize that they were human beings with human rights. Industry and trade were established. Peace reigned. Above all, people were openly living the Christian life, and many lads were actively engaged in church work. No congregation had been formally organized, but the readiness of the young people to join the church was brought to the notice of the Rev. W.T. Ware who was stationed at Creektown, with the result that he was appointed to go up and conduct the necessary services. On the Saturday night in August, the corresponding to the one when she arrived, a preparatory service was held in the hall beneath the mission house, and in the presence of the people, seven young Christians were received into the church by baptism. More were coming forward, but the fears of the friends succeeded in preventing them. Wait and see, they urged, until we know where the thing is. Some of the parents anxiously asked Ma whether the ceremony was in any way connected with Imbium. On Sunday came a great throng, which filled the hall and overflowed into the grounds, many sitting on native stools and chairs, and even on gin boxes. Before the communion service, she presented eleven of the children, including six she had rescued for baptism. It was a quiet and beautiful day, with the hush that comes with God's rest day all the world over. As the company gathered at the first memorial table in Okoyang, she thought of all the years that lay behind, and was greatly moved. In the stillness, the old Scottish psalm tunes rose thrilling with the gratitude and praise of a newborn people. After the bread and wine had been partaken of, thanks were returned by the singing of the 103rd psalm to the tune Stroudwater. When the third and fourth verses were being sung, she seemed to be lost in a trance of thought. She had a faraway look, and tears stood in her eyes. She was thinking of the greatness of God's love that could win even the oppressed people of Dark Okiang. She could not let the assembly break up without saying a few words. Now that they had the beginnings of a congregation, they must, she said, build a church large enough for all who cared to come. And she pled with those who had been received to remain true to the faith. Okiang now looks to you more than me for proof of the power of the gospel. In the quiet of the evening in the mission house, she seemed to dwell in the past. Long she spoke of what the conditions had been fifteen years before, and of the changes that had come since. But her joy was in those who had been brought to confess Christ, and she was glad to think that, after all, the work had not been a failure. And all the glory she gave to her father, who had so marvelously helped her. For a moment also her fancy turned to the future. She would be no longer there, but she knew the work would go on from strength to strength, and her eyes shone as she saw in vision the gradual ingathering of the people, and her beloved Okiyang at last, fair and redeemed. <laughs>